I don't care if somebody had to mark the fretboard with the notes or something, or, or if they didn't even care what notes they played, it didn't matter. It was just was the feeling they put into it. It was the enthusiasm that they had. Episode 8 of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest on this episode is Denny DeGorio, or to use his punk pseudonym, Denny Boredom. That's how he's credited on the record whose cover I appropriated for this episode's artwork, and that would be the second single by The Offs, San Francisco's sort of answer to the clash in terms of punk reggae fusion, although they did some other things as well. But Denny DeGorio was a member of The Offs, beginning in about 1978, and as we'll hear, he was really there from the very beginning of the Mabuhay Gardens era. He played in several other bands locally, including a couple of legendary, largely unheard bands, the Belfast Cowboys and Clocks of Paradise, unheard in the sense of there are not really any recordings to speak of. He also played with Jefferson Airplane guitarist Yorma Kakinen in his uh, solo act, I should say Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna guitarist Yorma Kakinen in his solo act during this same era, and so that gave Denny a sort of different perspective on the punk-hippie divide that was so prevalent in those days. And then after leaving San Francisco and moving to Austin, he reconnected with a couple of old friends in Alejandro and Javier Escovedo in a band called The True Believers. That had a pretty good run, including uh, an LP on a major label in 1985 with producer Jim Dickinson at the helm. And so we'll hear a little bit about that toward the end. Uh, In addition to his touring and recording resume, Denny was friends with a lot of the key players in the early San Francisco punk scene who are no longer with us. And that would include Will Shatter from Flipper, Jimmy Wilsey from The Avengers, Tony Kenman from The Dills, and Michael Belfer from The Sleepers. And it was that connection to Michael that sort of prompted my initial contact with Denny back in 2017 when I interviewed him for the book. And that's sort of what we were talking about as this interview sort of got underway. So there's a bit of a reference to Michael there at the beginning, but having said all that, I'll go ahead and step aside and let us get on with the interview. But a big thanks to Denny DeGorio, a wonderful storyteller and raconteur for doing this interview, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking to him. from Vallejo is that right 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 yeah I was from Vallejo Uh, I didn't meet Michael until uh until I'd moved to San Francisco and um you know I met him at just as being part of the of the San Francisco music scene you know um as big and varied as it was uh including everything from artists, performance artists, musicians, aspiring writers and filmmakers and, uh, you know, magazine publishers and so forth. Despite that, it was very uh, almost familial, uh, kind of uh, incestuous in some ways and and, um, in some ways. And um, it was kind of like, Oh, the like the island of misfit toys or something, you know, a bunch of uh, broken people in in different ways, sort of bonded over the the whole uh, punk rock genre, you know. Um, and a lot of us, you know, didn't have good family situations. I I imagine I know I know that was the case with me and a lot of the people I was close to. So. It was kind of the the family that we that we didn't have in, in in a lot of ways. So I got to know everybody uh and 
pretty quickly too. I mean, there were a lot of parties after the shows and parties after the parties and, <laughs> you know, everybody uh, got pretty close uh, be because of that. So it was a pretty cool scene. It's something, I, something that, that even though it was a few years, it really was a, a part of, a, of my my developmental years, I guess, because it really stuck with me. Uh, but I think more so than even high school and uh, any of the experiences I had growing up prior to that. How did you make your way up there or as far as finding out about that music scene? Uh, what is it, 30, 40 minutes away? Or how, how do you even get, how did you get from Vallejo to the city? Right. Uh, Vallejo is about 30 miles north of San Francisco, and it's on the bay. It's on the North Bay. So um, we, we can actually take a ferry to San Francisco from Vallejo. But I had a car, and uh, I, I, would, I would drive there. Now, I'd been going to San Francisco since I was 10 years old, you know. Um, so uh, I was really familiar with... Uh, with San Francisco, and and I remember just being down there and uh, seeing posters uh, on on the telephone poles and walls and of uh, shops and stuff like that. And um, at, at first, it was um, just um, bands, all kinds of bands, not really not really punk rock per se. But little by little, the punk rock man started playing, and pretty soon it had turned into a full-fledged scene. And but I started going to Mabuhay almost uh, right from the beginning. Uh, as soon as they were playing shows with any regularity, and uh, I remember the early punk scene uh, with uh, I don't know bands like UXA and meeting. Uh, Michael Kowalski and uh, Don Vinyl, the singer of the Offs, was one of the early folks, and Will and and uh, the Flipper guys, and uh, oh, just too many people to mention, really. So, first, I, I was I worked at a record store, and at first, I used to close up the record store, and I would go straight to the Mabuhay every night. And um, after a while, I met, after a, a short time, really, I'd met so many people, um, I ended up finding a, a, a opportunity to rent a room at uh, 3307 Mission Street, right at 29th and Mission. And uh, it was with uh, Don Vinell. Let's see, Jello Biafra was my other roommate. I probably mentioned this already. That's okay, because I, I didn't know the address, and I, I'd heard about that house, and I, I wanted to ask you about it anyway, because it's kind of legendary, but uh, mysterious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 well, it's one of the few addresses that I've lived at that I remember the address. I mean, you know, so it left a big impression on me. Um, let's see, yeah, uh, Jello, uh, Bruce Luce from Flipper. Um, Oh gosh, Guy Lopez, the um, who had been in the Zeros briefly, and um, uh, Tony from the Dills lived there for a little while. Anyway, and it was a bit of a revolving door, and of course, all the bands that came up there to play from uh, along the coast, anywhere from LA to up to Vancouver, uh, BC, a lot of them would you know stay stay there when they had gigs and and uh you know the scenes were the various punk rock scenes were were also connected um we were friendly with uh, all the bands and we would pretty much couch surf at each other's uh, punk rock flats <laughs> and support each other's music you know uh as best we could but you were you were living there before you joined the offs, or was that all kind of in the same? I well, according to my memory right now, <laughs> <laughs> I believe 
because see, I already knew, I already knew everyone. Um, but I believe that, uh, I had already moved in before I joined. And I think it was Don Vinyl that wanted, that asked me if I wanted to get, get a room there. And I already knew him and I already knew, I vaguely knew everybody to some to varying degrees. Um, Cause I would go to everybody's show. I was, a, I was like, I was a big fan of everyone. I, I didn't, I mean, it wasn't even, it almost didn't matter what what people sounded like to me back then because I was just so enthusiastic about about the scene, you know. I, even if I even if I wasn't crazy about the music, I I was I was enthusiastic about the creativity and the of, of the just I just I just found the whole thing really exhilarating. So that made me pretty likable. I mean, when you like when you like everybody, uh, people tend to like you. So <laughs> that's good advice. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, when you said you knew everybody, but at the same time, you probably hadn't known many of them for that long because it had only oh, been no. about six months, maybe six months to to a yeah. year. I reflect about that too sometimes because it's really it's really. Uh, but it's kind of like you know how how high school is only three years, but in that, those three years you feel like you feel real bonded to those people. Well, I I didn't really especially feel bonded, but it's it <laughs> like a it seems like a longer period of time. I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's kind of like that. I can't speak for everybody else, but for me, punk rock was. Uh, the San Francisco punk rock scene was my high school. It was everything I wanted high school to be. And I was popular, you know, and it was like, you know, uh, and, and, and it was with people that had similar backgrounds, at least, uh, at least in, in so far as their relationship to their parents and, and, uh, you know, general attitude towards authority and all that sort of thing yeah and was that um I, i'm guessing you somewhere in this period you went from uh living in vallejo to living in the city and was that your first place in uh living in san francisco that that apartment there at, at mission and 30th think about that for a second I'm trying to pick. I'm trying to picture this. I don't know if you went straight from your your parents' house to living there, or oh you know, yeah, other places. okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, when I got out of high school, um, I moved to uh, South Lake Tahoe uh, at the state line of, of between Nevada and and California. There's a you've heard of uh, South Lake Tahoe. The there's uh, casinos there and. Um, Anyway, I moved up there and became a cook. Had uh, got a job as a room service chef, and uh, but uh, I would come home to Vallejo every so often. And then when I was home, I would go to the city and and uh, go go and watch bands play. And then as a as a teenager, even before we were old enough to do it legally, we would go to, to the nightclubs and watch all the bands that were popular in the pre-punk era. And then I guess it was about a year, year and a half, something like that, that I came back and stayed because my mom had uh, gotten cancer. And so, I ended up uh, as as a sort of a caregiver kind of situation with my mom, which was a really weird dynamic because I had a real sort of uh, estranged and difficult relationship with my mom. But here she was on her dying bed, and 
and and I was the kid that was there. So yeah, it was really something. In some ways, it was real. It was yeah, you can imagine. It was a combination of feelings that I went through. I, uh, but overall, I would say it was a pretty healing experience. But I digress. Back to music. I um, I moved to moved to Vallejo, and, and uh, I had a job lined up before I came back, but I quickly lost it. And I was eligible for unemployment. And um, I was eligible for unemployment, so I was collecting unemployment. I was eligible for Social Security, so I was collecting Social Security. And, and we had gotten figured out this way to go out in the fields and, and pick these like weeds, they were called Cardone. We'd go down to the flower market in San Francisco and sell them for like a nickel a piece to the shop owners. And uh, that added up to a lot of money, especially since I was already collecting all that shit. So I got a big chunk of money and bought all my gear. And then I, I stopped doing that. And all I did was, was play music, but I was still collecting all that other stuff. So I was doing pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I heard somebody else describe it as being like basically uh, arts funding. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, European countries will, will actually just directly fund that. But uh, Right, right, right. It, it was our, our version. We don't even have that now. But I mean, at least not to the extent we did back then. But uh, yeah, that was right around the Reagan era. And uh, so there was still some of the, the safety nets were a little were a little stronger still, you know, they were being whittled away, but exactly. I mean, my mom had passed away. So I got social security for going to school. I would go to school and, uh, and then I'd get a chance to go on the, on a gig, like, uh, like Yorma, for example, had offered me to go to, uh, Italy, I think, during that time and anyway what whatever i was being offered was better than going to school so i wouldn't make it to school and i would end up you know it not completing my not completing my class but i still got the money i don't know how exactly that worked i guess because i'd already gotten the money <laughs> so, anyway what was the question? Yeah, I don't, let me come up with one. Uh, well, I wanted to ask something more about Yorma, but I'll I'll um, come back to that. Um, was was that when you started playing music, or you must have been playing music before? Oh yeah, I played music. Well, see, I was a kid that loved music as as a kid, and 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 like like I didn't have that many friends, but the friends I did have, we were like the only friends in in school that had long hair and listened to rock and roll, you know. But Vallejo was only 30 miles up north of, of San Francisco and it sat right on the bay, but yeah, it, it had a real small town sort of, uh, uh, in general, the, the, the attitude of the city itself was pretty uh, conservative. You know, it was a working class, oil refinery, naval, naval shipyard kind of down. And um, so, yeah, we were the only kids in, in school that really bonded on rock and roll music and smoking pot and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, I, I really wanted to play music. Even before that, I wanted to play music. The first time I saw the school band play, I wanted to play music. But we didn't have a, much money so I didn't really get I I didn't really get a chance to get a guitar until I was probably about 10 or 11 and I remember I begged my mom like crazy to buy me this funky uh classical good style guitar with you know cat cut strings and everything it just happened to be on sale at the music store and she got it for me it was a piece of shit but i but i mean as a kid it was 
great for me. And uh, but the other kids had had better stuff and everything. So I was kind of I was kind of jealous. I remember being kind of jealous. And uh, but I started playing um, and I found a couple other kids to play with. And we had a, a little high school band. And um, as soon as I as soon as I left uh, after high school and moved up to South Lake Tahoe, I got a I got a, a nicer electric guitar. Um, it wasn't still wasn't a very rock and roll guitar. I, I took. I had a very brief period where I was interested in jazz, <laughs> and I took uh, lessons from this guy that that worked at uh, worked at had, he owned a music store down there, and and um, uh, but yeah, so I've been playing music pretty much my whole life. You know, I had a I had a high school band, and and uh, I took lessons and. And every time I would be in in my hometown, I would I would frequent. Uh, Rather ripped records was a was a place that we almost lived at. I we used to love going there and look, looking at looking for records. That's how I discovered uh, punk rock more as a as a global thing, you know. Prior to that, I'd only known about a couple of, of local bands. Um, so, so you started on guitar, not bass. Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that because I'm a little, I'm a little vapid, and and I kind of lose my train of thought here. Oh no, I, I was just because I because I only, um, I believe that you played bass in most. No, of, you know, you're right. No, I, I'm, I appreciate that you're that you're asking me these questions because I, I lose my train of thought and I forget. Yeah. Um, uh, I really loved, loved good guitar, but there was something about the bass that really moved me. And, I, and I was the kind of kid that I wanted to play music so bad. I would literally play any instrument that the band needed. Like I remember playing keyboards in a band. Um, I played guitar in one of my own bands, but, um, I started uh, really liking the bass a lot, and uh, and I so from as a teenager, I play. I began to primarily play bass. Part of the reason was because I loved I loved the bass. I loved the way I, I just loved the way it felt. You know, when you listen to a song and that bass comes up like a I don't know how to explain it, but but I I, I remember just just loving it and uh, and it was real easy to get gigs as a bass player because bands <laughs> always needed a bass player. At one time after I moved to San Francisco, I was in as many as five bands, been uh, playing gigs all almost every night. So. Okay. Well, let's see. What were the? Let me see if I can name some of those. Uh, the, well, the, the Offs, uh, Belfast Cowboys, um, Yorma's band. Who were some of the others mixed in? There? Oh man, I would play with anybody that needed a bass player. I can't even remember at the time I played. I remember filling in for the for the uh, and playing with the Mutants. I remember. Oh, okay. uh, I remember playing. I remember playing with the, these these brothers. I can't remember I can't remember their name right now, but they were brothers that had a band. Oh, the the stench, the stench brothers. Oh no no not no, the no. stench brothers. Uh, they were they. I remember the name of the band was called the the Verge, and um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean I I would literally play with with. Uh, with anyone, I just you know, and and if I got a chance to play with somebody that was that I felt was better than I, that that was a that was definitely a plus. But I would play with, I it didn't matter what how good they were or how bad they played or 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 even sometimes whether how much I I liked 
the music they played. I just loved to play. And um, yeah, I would, I, I, what other bands? Uh, gee whiz, I just can't think right now. Just, to, you know, no, no, nobody really big. Um, I hung out with Flipper a lot, but not not enough to say I I played with them. I think I I filled in maybe one time or um, oh I remember them. I remember the, the there was a, a show where I did a, a, a this is this isn't this isn't playing music, but it just so right. happened to pop up in my head that I remember this <laughs> this one. Uh, period of time or time i don't know if i did it just once or more than once but i remember doing a magic show before the flipper concert and i i, I and you know i drank a bit of course and uh <laughs> and it was a a a, a punk rock uh the, the concept was that i was a uh sort of a a punk rock approach to magic trick and not to magic and uh what that means is uh to me is that the, the, I, I had no experience with magic and the tricks didn't work. And, and so it was kind of funny. Uh, at least it was to me and my friends. I remember that we loved it. Uh, I don't think the club owner loved it so much because I made a mess of eggs and beer and uh, all kinds of crap all over the stage. Well, it's funny because they, they toured... I mean, I've, I've heard stories about their, you know, the later, later version of Flipper that toured Australia in maybe 2009. They toured Australia and their tour manager is uh, someone who I don't know if he was performing on that tour, but he did a, actually a kind of magic act that is not too far off from what you described. Like it was kind of inept magic. <laughs> flipper and magicians and and uh punk musicians magicians it's just kind of a weird coincidence but but i was thinking about you know the bass thing what you were saying about bass you know somebody like will the stories i've heard about him is that he basically picked up a bass and was you know in a band the next week and that was often kind of the story that people would tell about you know this idea you know punk comes and people pick up their instruments and um i imagine there was a fair amount of that oh yeah i guess you were sometimes in bands with people who were oh yeah uh, yeah more like more recent you know in terms of picking up their instruments absolutely that that's why that's why i say i would play with people regardless of how uh, experienced or inexperienced they they were because for me enthusiasm uh, was more important than, uh, than even than than the ability to to play. I mean, if somebody, I don't care if somebody had to mark the fretboard with the notes or something or or whatever it takes, or or if they didn't even care what notes they played, it didn't matter. It was just was the feeling they put into it. It was the enthusiasm that they had. It was it was how they uh, just. Uh, uh, took over the stage and and expressed uh, expressed emotions and anger and and all these feelings you know in a way that wasn't so prepackaged and commercial because that was the the whole the music scene and kind of degenerated into this I don't know. I don't know what you'd classify that music, but you know how rock got before punk rock, it got really syrupy. And uh, uh, when you hear people talk about San Francisco in say 75, 76, it was like, oh, it's bleak. It's, it's you know, aging hippies and uh, yeah. kind of corporate rock and Bill Graham and, and Winterland. Uh, and at the same time, I would hear from, say, someone like Michael told me about going up to, you know, to Winterland in, say, 1974 and being really into whether it was the James Gang or oh, it's Robin Trower. Yeah. So so there were, I guess I guess there was like mixed in there with that boring music scene. There would still be good stuff. I mean, did you go to see did you remember going to do you remember going to Winterland or, or oh, any of those? Fuck yeah, I went to Winterland all the time. I, um, but of course, it was it was 
it was more than it, going to Winterland was uh, was uh, going going to the city, uh, going to concerts and drinking and smoking pot and seeing you know seeing all these different bands and um, uh, there was a sort of a a, a pre, in my mind the way I remember it it was like sort of a a a, a pre punk period before you know the before the movie movie yeah uh, really sprung up and um and there was the the pre pre punk era where basically everything went i mean i loved it i remember going to what what did they call that that uh at wonderland they had these local sort of uh not local but they had two tuesday they had these tuesday shows that were cheaper i remember going to kiss concerts i'm thinking they they were pretty fucking hot and uh just yeah james gang i saw them all robin trower it didn't matter who they were we I, i just i would basically get obliterated and and uh and try to find our way back to Vallejo. Not always, not always making it. I guess the difference would be that you probably would have a hard time picturing yourself, you know, actually being up on the stage in that in that era. Or there was a much bigger separation between, uh, obviously, between the musicians and the. Yeah, the- I, yeah, I, I would, I would say so. I mean, of course, we were younger then, so it was. So, I mean, you know, it was, well, I can't speak for other people, but I would say, judging by the fact that we all wanted to have bands and, and, and that's all we talked about was bands, having a band, playing in bands, that um, we aspired to be musicians. And there was a period when we kind of, when I kind of fell for the, uh, the commercial stuff to, to to some degree, but it was like punk rock came out sort of just at the same time that that I, I, it it both expressed and and drove that anti-commercial uh, feeling, you know. Just as I was feeling bored and sick of that of that kind of music, and really starting to develop a an unusual kind of hatred for that sort of approach to music and punk rock was there just to just to go right into does that make sense Sleepers had a gig or two booked, and um, but they lost. But for some reason, the bass player and drummer weren't playing. Or I remember a specific show where, and I may have already told you about. Yeah, this. you told me about it, but it's a really good story for about uh, up at uh, the Mabuhe or on Broadway or yeah, well, whatever that was called on top of Mabuhe there. I think it was on Broadway or off Broadway. And yeah, I told you the story about how Ricky had like done this pirouette on stage and ended up falling like just falling flat and knocking himself out and they carried him out with it in a ambulance stretcher. It was the most insane thing you ever saw. And and that was pretty much in my memory, that was the where Clocks in Paradise started because we were stuck with uh, with that lineup uh, without Ricky, so I don't even remember who. I, for a little bit, I don't think we had a, a singer, and then we had uh, uh, Connie. In the midst of playing in the offs, you did the Belfast Cowboys with uh, with Roz and I guess a couple of guys from the Avengers. Yeah, it was yeah Roz. Uh, Danny, who I love to death, we were we were pretty pretty tight for a while there, and uh, and Jimmy, who I also love, and God, I miss him. Let's see, 
Yeah, I think that was all of us. Roz, Danny, Jimmy, and me. Yeah, and I think there were just a few, you all played a handful of shows, but it sounded like they were all pretty big uh, events. Uh, Roz was telling me about that. Um, right. That that it was mostly, at that point, it was mostly covers, but then there was one song that, uh, that running with the fast crowd that... Right. That, yeah. yeah, that got butchered by Yorma, by the way, um, <laughs> which was partially my fault, but uh, partially, it was, I... I don't know. I'm not sure yet how much responsibility to take for, for that happening. Um, I I played I played a big part in 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 this because I introduced it to, to Yorma, but uh, but uh, the lyrics definitely got butchered, and uh, I wasn't happy with how it came out, and I know Roz hated it. But yeah, that 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 was the I think the only original song, and I remember uh, the original version. I wish we had a recording of it because it was so different than than uh, anything that got recorded by anyone else. It was more of a it had more of a, a kind of a Mata Hoople feel to it. If you listen, if you if you were to hear it, if you were to hear the song, you could you could imagine a kind of Matahubo feel to it. It was a it was perfect for Belfast Cowboys because of uh, it fit in really well with all the, with the type of covers we did, which were all party songs. And after the first gig, we we booked any other gig, which I don't remember how many. There was only a handful, but I remember. The, our posters always said that it was our final show, although we had several final shows. One of those shows might have been the first show that Bruce did with Flipper, although it might have been the second one. Um, it would have been right after the little period when Ricky was singing with them. But boy, that would be asking a lot of somebody to remember a, a, a random show from 40. 43 years ago, but did anything else stand out about those Belfast Cowboys shows or? What I remember of that show was that we had, we had these bottles of vodka, um, martinis pre-mixed with like a Belfast Cowboy sort of branding put on them, you know, just sort of artificially. And we had a bunch of plastic, uh, Glasses that kind of look like martini glasses. I think I think they were. I don't know what they were meant to be, wine glasses or whatever. But they were plastic glasses, and we handed out free martinis to everybody while while we were playing. And then I remember seeing Roz with "Do You Think I'm Sexy" carved into his chest, and one of those plastic glasses full of volume or something and he was posing for a photo i i don't know if anything came of that photo i never saw it but i remember that image that kind of you know burned into my uh amygdala <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm traumatized by <laughs> <laughs> Go fast, Cowboy. I don't know if it seemed like ancient history or, or I don't know how it would have seemed, but Yorma. Uh, having played in Jefferson Airplane, he was a solo artist at that point. And uh, after Jefferson Airplane, yeah. Okay, yeah. And wait, he was in Hot Tuna as well, right? Um, yeah, he, he, yeah. Jefferson Airplane, and then Hot Tuna, which came out of the that him and Jack would play. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that okay, so. I I can't remember all of this, but so you played with with Bob Steeler, who was 
a member of Hot Tuna. You played alongside him in the Offs, and then you played alongside Yorma in in Yorma's band. But do you remember w- which one of those led to the other? Yeah. Um, well, I was in the Offs, and Bob Steeler was a drummer, and. Uh, yeah, so you know, bass players and drummers, you know, they either make a connection or they don't. And and Bob Steeler, you know, I, we had a pretty good connection as as far as uh, uh, the drum bass player thing, and and uh, we were pre- we were pretty tight, I would say. And um, I remember uh, he he was playing with Hot Tuna, and if I remember correctly, uh, they had a bunch of shows booked. But um, they were having some tip or something. They weren't getting along. And I mean, uh, uh, Yorma and Jack. And so there were all these shows already booked for Hot Tuna. And they needed a bass player. And Bob was real enthusiastic about me and, and, and basically sort of plugged me to, to Yorma. And Yorma came and saw us play a gig at... Uh, the temple beautiful and uh yeah he was he was down after that with wanting me to play with him which you know i, I thought that was cool they were going to be you know basically just gigs on the side that paid pretty well you know i wasn't i wasn't a hot tuna fan and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the best i can say about about that is that as a kid, I mean, I loved the whole San Francisco psychedelic hippie era. And I remember like Jefferson Airplane, the Volunteers of America album was actually one of the first records I had, but but I was a kid, you know. Um, I mean, it was like, you know, probably stacked on my turntable with the the monkeys or something. <laughs> I, I remember listening to, to that music and it was iconic, you know, of course. But at, um, after that, I, I I mean, I was, I was not a, a hot tuna and that whole kind of thing was a little bit boring to me. And uh, in the context of the San Francisco punk scene, it was a little bit, it, it, it it kind of uh, was a. Uh, it pulled away from my street cred a little bit. <laughs> it's not like I wanted everybody to know. Hey, I play with Yorma too. You know. God, I sound like an asshole for saying it, but I no, was no, no. It's, I mean, it's, it's completely understandable. I remember you telling me about that the last time that you had that, that kind of feeling, but you know, I think that's understandable because. Um, I mean, you also mentioned that you appreciated it more in hindsight that you did play with him, and and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but you know, I think the idea at the time was, you know, this is this is a rejection of these stale hippies, and and so so to be yeah. to turn around and and, and it's not yeah. like that that's necessarily fair that you know everyone in those bands should be treated as a pariah or that everything they ever did was a right. bad thing, but you also had. What was it, SVT, that uh, Jack Cassidy was doing, and so exactly. Uh, so um, again, it's it's like it, that wouldn't be. I don't think anybody would, you know, bat an eyelash today, or that you could even have any kind of equivalent sort of. Yeah. But then it was like it was a real, uh, it was a real distinction between what the hippie era stood for versus what the punk era stood for. It was an so, identity thing, like I was yeah. saying. Or music was a real identity thing, and that and that feeling uh, was uh, reciprocated. I mean, uh, and and a little more clearly expressed. I mean, the audience just hated me because, like, as soon as we'd come out, like one of the first things I would hear shouted is, "Where's Jack?" You know. Uh, <laughs> Me and Danny were laughing about this. People just threw shit at, at at me when I was up on stage. And and I just was like, you know, <laughs> I was in my element when that happened. I was like, yeah. Oh, 
But I got Danny, Danny was laughing about because they were throwing shit, they were throwing pennies and, and bottles and everything at me. And then uh, Danny said, Somebody threw a fucking camera. <laughs> I don't know, it's probably one of those portable cameras or something. I'm not <laughs> sure because I don't remember it, but people were just throwing junk at me. It didn't even matter what it was. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that was interesting stuff that wound up on the cutting room floor as far as the, the book goes. But you, in particular, I remember you telling me about New York versus San Francisco in that time. And, you know, particularly with reference to kind of the, the, the drug situation, but maybe just in general, like what you remember, because I, I think you spent some time there in New York. I don't think you lived there, but you maybe had a lot of gigs there and maybe would have extended stays yeah. there. If I remember right, yeah, I stayed in New York a lot. We had uh, we had these friends, Pat and Emily, that had a they had a video uh, company or 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 something. They had a whole library of, of videos of everybody, we including us, and they had an apartment on Orchard Street, lower lower side, you know of Manhattan. So it was right there, right where everything was. And uh, we would have a bunch of gigs and I would usually stay there. And then anytime I was in New York, even after I left the office, I would stay at Pat and Emily's, like when we came back from Germany and all that stuff, I stayed with them. But uh, yeah, and when I remember anytime the ops played in New York, we we had some extended stays then before they moved out there. The problem with New York was that I loved it. It would have been good for me. I considered it uh, strongly for a while. But to this to this day, it, it affects my life. I, I had... Uh, very strong proclivity uh, to uh, getting strung out on dope. I mean, that's one of the things that Michael and I bonded on. <laughs> um, you know, I was a fucking junkie, and and uh, I knew that if I if I stayed in New York. It was just, it was just too easy to score, and uh, just too easy. And and I, you know, I, I knew that I knew that it would it would be uh, to my demise to 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 stay there, and and uh, and that's the reason why I went back to San Francisco. I, and even when I went back to San Francisco, it was with the thought that I might go back to New York because uh, San Francisco was already sort of uh, going through a, a, a brief little period of, uh, you know, uh, it, there wasn't a whole lot happening uh, for uh, probably only a few months, but because things seemed to pick up uh, after I left, but at least from my perspective, it didn't seem like for at least a few months, there wasn't a whole lot happening. And uh, so I was working jobs. And um, if there was another place that was uh, that was easy to get dope, was the, it would be San Francisco. Um, I, I, got, I got strung out really bad there. And uh, uh, rank and file came through town. They were living in Austin already. And they played a gig, and uh, I was real tight with uh, Tony. Right. Okay. Yeah, and uh, he said, uh, 
you know, he could he could tell I was uh, struggling a little bit, and so he said, you know, uh, Denny, you got to come to Austin, and I think partly was he wanted to save my life, you know, but yeah, it sounded exciting to me at the time, and uh, I was at the bottom of my methadone detox, which is this thing you go through where you start out at a certain dose and then you start titrating down and then and then by the time you're at the at the lower dose like it goes you know basically two three one and then you're out and i was just finished a a, a methadone taper and uh i was working some shitty restaurant job i don't know what i had as far as equipment goes but i I don't think I had much going as far as that goes either. I think I had to buy equipment again when I got out to Austin. But anyway, so Tony says, like, you got to come out to Austin. You love it there. It's got a great scene. You have all kinds of bands to play with. And um, so I think it was like a, the weekend of their show that they were telling me that, mostly Tony. Although the other guys were like just as enthusiastic about Austin, and um, yeah, uh, it was uh, like Friday or Saturday they were telling me, and by Monday, Tuesday, I was in the van with them going back to Austin, and uh, yeah, I dug it. I I uh, I loved the Austin scene. When we went out to New York, we, one of the places we stopped and played was Austin. So, you know, there were some people that had already heard of the off. So I had my in and I started trying out for bands and everything and started playing. But it was it was cool. I fell in love with Austin, to be honest, right away. There, there, what I loved was the diversity of music that there was there. I remember the first week I... I got here and uh, this friend of mine who later became my roommate, Dennis Nowlin, came by and, uh, and said, uh, hey, you guys, we got we to gotta go to this place called The Broken Spoke and see uh, Ernest Tubb play. <laughs> and it was like, you know, being shot back in time, a hundred years or something. Uh, Ernest Tubb was a, was an old feller by then, but right, but it's still the real deal, and um, yeah, yeah, a real deal and a honky tonk, and 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 uh, you know he played the same show. I imagine he played a half his life. It was really something to see. You know, backstage he had a like a like oxygen or something, like, and he looked pretty frail, but yet. He was still out there playing, and it struck me. Uh, it just struck me how how important music was to his life and to people in general, and then also how um, it was kind of like a, a, a handing of the torch over to the, you know, to the other younger musicians. I mean, I don't know. It was just cool to see. And there was a lot of, so there was a lot of old country bands. There was a big punk rock scene. There was a big reggae scene. For some reason, reggae bands that would play in, in the major cities would always stop and play in Austin. Um, just, you know, it was a great music scene, great people. And I ended up, and it, and it was a big scene. And it was, it kind of reminded me of San Francisco a little bit. In fact, there is sort of a San Francisco Austin connection that goes goes back quite a ways. Yeah, and then at that time, well, there would have been both the both rank and file, and then I don't know at what point the True Believers formed, but that came along a little bit later. Yeah. So, all right. So I went came down to Austin with the uh, rank and file, and yeah, I was. Uh, roommates with Tony for a little while. But anyway, um, at some point, uh, rank and file either broke up or 
Alejandro quit or something, but they they parted ways. And Alejandro's brother was living in the, I think it was in San Francisco at the time, or he was in San Diego, I don't know, but he came out uh, to start a band with, with us. It was me and Alejandro and Javier, and then this other guy, John D. Graham, it's a, a real good guitar player that played locally here. And we had a few drummers, but uh, anyway. So we started True Believers after they parted ways. Uh, Javier moved out here, and I, I was already pretty close friends with Javier just because of the San Francisco scene. And uh, so we started playing gigs right away. And uh, yeah, it, things seemed to go pretty fast because the next thing I know, we were shopping producers and we ended up with a deal with EMI Capital. And that's what that record came out on. I was thrilled to be able to say that we were playing on EMI Capital. That sounds pretty badass. And then the it was Jim Dickinson who was the yeah. producer on that, which who's kind of a legend, a legendary uh, producer for sure, or musician all, all around. Yeah, yeah, man, that was quite an experience. And True Believers toured all over the country. We never really got to go to Europe, but we toured all over the United States, and, and uh, you know, we met so many people. I feel like I have friends all over the all over the country, uh, primarily because of, of True Believers, but also we became really tight. I mean, you can imagine living in a van, being on the road, going from gig to gig. I mean, we'd come back home for a few months, but we were on the road a lot and played a lot, enough to where we put ourselves on salary and just sort of uh, dealt with the money that way, you know, which was uh, kind of different. Getting paychecks from from the band. Yeah. And I don't know how that, that ended apart from Alejandro eventually having a solo career because I had heard of him before. I'd heard of a lot of this other stuff. It seemed like, as I look it up, there was the one album, and then oh, yeah. poof. How it, how it ended. Um, oh, okay. Well, um, well, it didn't. It, it didn't end all at once. It, uh, it was like, so from my perspective, I left the band, and then they kept. They kept going for a while and they eventually broke up. And I say I left the band, basically I was kicked out or fired or whatever way you want to put it. And that was tough, man. It's like, I know so many musicians that that play in so many bands and, and leaving a band for whatever reason is absolutely no big deal but uh yeah. but for some reason it really struck me i mean i guess i guess that because uh i guess because i'm like that i i was really attached but but it wasn't like without any reason what happened was we had this really big gig and uh it anytime i was in new york i would get strung out i mean it's like a moth to Playing, you know, it didn't take very long for me to get a little habit going. Uh, I came there with one. And uh, so we had this big gig where there was a record guy coming out to, uh, to a scout or something to come out and see us play. We were doing like this Austin show. And so, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I felt good to do a good show. And I went down to, uh, you know, the, the Lower East Side and to score some dope. And, uh, you know, right around that time, New York was starting to do their, their drug sweeps and all that shit. And I got caught up in one. And uh, I got busted. 
with heroin possession. And they took me, well, obviously to jail. And um, I didn't get out for a few days. And obviously I missed the gig. And boy, did I piss those guys off. So that's how, that's how the band broke up from my perspective. We played some more shows, but uh, it, there was, it was real tense. And then by the time we got back to Austin, uh, I don't know how you want to say it, but I left the band. And then uh, they continued and got uh, another bass player. They went through a couple. And uh, I don't remember what else, but I know that uh, that they played for a while. And then at some point they broke up. I think, the, I think there was some tension between Javier and Alejandro, but uh, they broke up and Javier went back to LA, San Diego, and uh, and Javier, I mean, and Alejandro started his solo career, did a thing called Buick McCain. Seems like there was more than that, but yeah, you know, he just, he carried on. He was, uh, yeah, fucking Alejandro, he persevered, man. He was, He's something else. Yeah, I wonder, you know, thinking about there's rank and file, true believers, and then even what Jimmy Wilsey was doing with Chris Isaac in the 80s, there was this turn to a lot of Americana, roots rock, whatever you'd call it, before there was the term alternative country, which not that this stuff was really alternative country, but... um, is that something that you could have like foreseen in like in 1978 that wow in two or three years there's going to be this interest in in kind of roots american music or uh where do you think that that came from that's a big question i don't know yeah well the kind thing is yeah there was a bunch of us uh jimmy uh danny the the drummer from the Avengers, who briefly played drums, by the way, with with Yorma. We did a tour together. Rank and file, of course, and uh, just, you know, there there was a a little small little faction of people that uh, began to appreciate. I mean, Jimmy Wilson turned me on to a lot of a lot of country music and it was kind of like, you know, people just started to have more of an open mind about, about uh, old stuff, you know, old classic country and stuff like that. And uh, it just kind of seeped into the music. Could you have foreseen it? (laughs) Well, I don't, I guess what I'm asking is like, was that, was that interest already there? I guess it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, I saw it develop, you know, I mean, there there were probably a couple people where the interest was already there. Like, as far as I remember, Jimmy always always loved country music. He turned me on to so much stuff, like you know, everything from Hank Williams to Johnny Horton, Letty Frizzell. Same with Tony and, and Chip. They they were big country music fans. And uh, and after I saw, after you saw it sort of start to develop, you know, uh, it, it kind of caught fire. And uh, there were a few bands that were called country punk. That's what yeah. they called primitive country. Or, or even uh, or even cow punk, I guess. Yeah, uh, cow punk. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, because I mean, I guess in, in a lot of ways it, it makes sense, given that you know whatever punk rock is as a style, it's fairly limited, and um, I don't think it really was a style. If you look at the say Mabuhay era bands, you know, I mean, there's certain things in common, but on the other hand, there's a pretty big difference between like the sleepers and the mutants or, 
um, the mutants and crime. So it's not really a a style, even if it's maybe uh, considered to be a style nowadays. But I guess after a a couple of years of stripped down, uh, fairly loud music with short, relatively short songs, maybe the idea is uh, we want to do something different. And I guess that was just one of the pathways out of out of that to, to something different, I guess. But uh, exactly, I, I agree. And in like a lot of forms of music, punk rock was a folk music. I mean, just like country, and I mean, you know, like we were saying before, it's an identity thing. You know, things get old, and people want to identify with something that's considered new, even if it's something. <laughs> old you know if uh if nobody else is doing it it's uh it's new mm. 